We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of One Trick Pony on October 3rd, 1980. It was written by Paul Simon, directed by Robert M. Young, and released by Warner Brothers. Though not technically autobiographical, the film does use some of Paul Simon's experiences in the industry. The Paul Simon album, One Trick Pony, was released concurrently with the film. Every song on the album is featured in the film, though some are slightly different mixes. Wouldn't that just be considered a soundtrack? Yeah, sure. The album received the Grammy Award nomination for Best Album of Original Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television Special. Hmm. And you have this album. Yeah, I have this album, apparently. <laughs> it's part of, it's more my, my parents' collection. Uh, but it is, I was looking for somewhere in time and stumbled across One Trick Pony instead. That's funny. Uh, but, uh, it doesn't, but it doesn't have any of like the B-52s or, uh, the other band that plays in the right. movie. Um, and no Tiny Something Tim. in Spoon, William Spoon, or what was it? Love and Spoonful. Love and Spoonful. Yeah. But it just had. Just the Paul Simon. Just the Paul Simon music, but not Soft Parachutes, right? Uh, I actually did not look to see it. I don't think it does, because I read somewhere that uh, it wasn't added as a bonus track until a 2004 reprint of the album. Mm. And I think that yours was bought at in the actual time period. Yeah. We start in black with visible headlights under the opening credits. Then we cut back in time to see Jonah as a child sitting at a child's piano. Back to the headlights. We see Jonah slightly older leading a barbershop quartet. Yeah, he looks like Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> like No, I mean, like, he looks like the character of Eleven <laughs> from Stranger who is, Things. Who is about ten. <laughs> Back to the headlights. Jonah is now performing on television for a national convention for McCarthy's presidential campaign. Back to the headlights, and now we can tell that it's an incoming plane landing on the runway. A baggage handler unloads a bunch of instruments from a TWA plane. The band walks through an airport. Somebody tries to peddle religion. To several members of the band on their way out a la airplane earlier this year i thought this was gonna come back like i i, I cause the he, book that he gets well yeah because he actually finally takes the book i think just to get the guy off his back and yeah. I, I thought maybe like towards the end of the movie he would have read it and like written a song about it or like come to some realization about his life but we, we never come back nope. to it and, and i and i live this life as far as like everyone is just like no thanks no thanks and they they just pass him by <laughs> But then they lock onto that one person, yep. and that is always me. <laughs> it is I'm always the person that that they just follow forever. Yeah, I I have several like weird books that I've collected <laughs> they, over the and years. You keep them because people are like this guy. I'm going to be able to pressure this guy into it. And you feel book. weird throwing religious text into the trash. <laughs> I just feel weird. I would feel weird most throwing any book really away. I feel like if I eventually took this book, I would turn and throw it through the glass window of a storefront here in the airport and just keep walking. Be like, that's not my book. This guy's <laughs> the Hare Krishna over here. But as he, they're going down an escalator together, the guy's still trying to push him on it, and he says, How do you know you're not interested? You don't even know what I'm going to say. I know. This is not my first airport. 
The guy tries repeatedly to hand off a religious text, and Jonah is frustratingly patient with the guy, and even takes the book before the scene ends. The band pulls into their hotel, in a van. We see Jonah shaving for a moment, in the tub, before a bandmate enters, to ask when they're supposed to be performing. Jonah says they'll leave about 8.15, and before he ducks out, the bandmate asks, That's it, huh? In reference to Jonah's presumably unimpressive genitals. <laughs> For context, the bandmate is black, and Jonah responds, I am, after all, a Caucasian. I understand, and I sympathize. Uh, the, the Paul Simon's delivery, I mean, I'm not familiar with Paul Simon really doing a lot of acting roles, no. or even his way of speaking, yeah. but his whole demeanor, and with the shaving cream all over his face, it I was like, man, this just sounds and feels like Bob Balaban. Oh like, yeah, it's very Balaban. I can see that. His bandmate reminded me of Craig Robinson. Yeah. Oh, totally. I think a lot of these people are just musicians who they gave lines to. Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to look up what they were in, and it seemed like they might have just been in his band. <laughs> yeah. The band performs at the Agora Ballroom in Cleveland, Ohio. Jonas sings the title song, One Trick Pony, and it's a pretty great song because this is Paul Simon, and he writes good music. He makes it look so easy. It looks so clean. He moves like God's immaculate machine. He makes me think about all of these extra moves I make. And all this herky-jerky motion and the bag of tricks it takes to get me through my working day. One trick pony. I looked up this place. It it's a it's an actual yes. It's an actual place, and it seems a pretty decent sized venue. Yeah. So I was like that trying to gauge by the the venue like how big this band is and it's like because we don't really have a lot of context for that yet in the movie and i'm like it seems like they're they're a pretty decent band and they're opening for the b-52s so i didn't know how big the b-52s were in 1980 exactly so i was like i'm not i'm not entirely sure how how big this band is you know is this willie nelson level like honeysuckle rose i don't know yeah well i think i think they are pretty big but they're they're on a downward slope and the B-52s are, are on the in the opposite direction, and they kick off their set with Rock Lobster. Backstage, a waitress brings in the drinks for the band and tells them that only one-third of their order is comped and asks who is paying. One of the band members says, Warner Brothers is going to pay for it, because at the time they were actually represented by Warner Brothers Records, but she knows that this band here is not represented by Warner Brothers Records, yeah. that these guys don't have that deal so she's like eh you're not with warner brothers jonah tells her to just leave the drinks and they'll straighten it out later that night he heads home with the girl and they share backstories she has a dog that she found in the trash like literally found it in a trash can and a boyfriend who doesn't live here jonah is divorced with a son the girl's boyfriend's a roadie so he's gone a lot and jonah asks what she does when he's gone and then we cut directly to them sharing a bathtub the girl doral tells him a story about her abandoned plans to sing for a living. She sings a little bit of a song for him, and he seems mildly interested. <laughs> like, he doesn't, like, compliment it or anything. Yeah. And then we cut immediately to him leaving the next morning. She does an all right job. Yeah. She does a fair rendition of Bobby McGee. Yeah. Back in his hotel room, he calls his ex-wife, or I guess there's, it's still his wife. They're separated. They're not divorced yet. Yeah. To check on his son, Maddie. She reminded him about an upcoming meeting to finalize the divorce, and he seems to be dragging his feet. On the road to their next town, they read the review of their show. It isn't glowing, and it tries to attribute their muted reception to the fact that they haven't been in Cleveland in a while. Basically, only compliments the lead guitarist. Jonah is described as 
lacking the spark of his earlier performances. Jonah surprises his wife outside her building because most of the rest of their shows were canceled, so they, they were able to come home earlier than expected. Inside, he asks how things are going. He compliments her on how nice the fern looks. I spray it every day. I talk to it, give it lots of encouragement. You haven't told her about our separation? No, absolutely not. I didn't think it would be wise at this time. It's just beginning to sprout new leaves. So they still have a playful relationship. She mentions that she's worried about Maddie because he has gotten it in his head somehow that he's going to be a singer-songwriter when he grows up, and she asks Jonah to talk him out of it. The conversation sours, and she goes off on him for being immature. Weirdly, though, her problem doesn't seem to be that he's like a bad boy musician or an absentee father, but that rock and roll is an immature art form and that it's for kids. I, I don't know if I agree with that statement. That might be what she's saying in this particular moment, but I think she reiterates throughout the film that his absenteeness is definitely the problem. Yeah, I think that's a problem, but it, it seems like she would be less upset if it wasn't rock and roll, which is weird. Especially in 1980, it's a weird case to make. But she cites some expert named Dr. Engelhart, and she says, She observed, I'm merely passing on the observation, that kids play rock and roll, kids listen to it. Really? Well, is she aware that Anna Freud, Anna Freud, happens to love rock and roll? In retaliation, he calls her boring, and she immediately bursts into tears. He also punches, like, some kind of, like, cereal boxes or yeah. something. And he gives a little bit of that husband rage. Yep. Which I imagine is one of the reasons that they are splitting up. Yeah. Yeah. He asks what she wants from him because he's still trying to salvage things. And she almost falls into the trap by saying, well, what I want, before correcting herself, what I wanted. And it sounds like he was on the road a lot. And when he wasn't, he was still mostly working when he was home. Jonah and Maddie do a bit of batting practice in Central Park. Jonah's doing full color commentary. And the kid has a good attitude for his first two strikes and then hits a home run. They head back home to drop him off, and we see the divorce proceedings muted under another Paul Simon song. We get a moment of listening to voicemails, strumming a guitar with a pig nose in his bed, and the last message is from his agent, and the voice is very clearly Harry Shearer as Bernie Weppner. I miss this pig nose thing. What it it's an amp. Oh. It's a brand of amp. Okay. <laughs> very popular I one. I don't know. I don't know that there was a pig in his bed. I had the same amp when I was a kid. <laughs> okay. He has an amp in his bed, not an actual pig. No, it's an actual pig nose that people used as an amplifier. I don't know. I'm picturing like the godfather here. Like, I'm yeah. not sure what's Cause, happening. Because you know, the pig nose is, is round and face forward, so you got the left and the right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Richard gets it. We cut right to him auditioning his material for Walter Fox and Cal Van Damp. Some people said Jesus is the ace and the hole But I never met the man so I don't really know Maybe some Christmas if I'm sick and alone He will look up my number, call me on the phone He'll say, hey boy, where you been? Oh, so come in dear, Cal, this is my wife Lonnie Halfway through his first pitch, Walter's wife Lonnie enters And he welcomes her right in to interrupt the song Jonah stops down on guitar. He starts into the second verse once things calm down again, and immediately the phone is ringing. Apparently it's a call that Walter has to take. Walter congratulates whoever it is on the phone for their recent success. They ask what else he has, and Jonah launches into a ballad. 
they tell him that without a hook he can't get into the top 40 but he only got like eight seconds into this song before they were like there's no hook here Mm -hmm. cal tells jonah that the songs aren't good enough and jonah says that he needs the band behind him cal says the band is just spectacle that's what i said to the guy at billboard i said now listen i'm a funny kind of guy but i will go out on a limb and i will tell you that the stones the stones are the only group that ever successfully combined music and spectacle maybe springsteen i think that's highly inaccurate <laughs> yeah but he's he's literally saying that any successful musician should be able to perform with just a guitar and their own vocals and it's like there's so many bands that that does not work for her yeah well also he's just quoting himself a lot of this scene right he's like this is what i told variety or what i can't yeah. remember the the publication and he's like he's like and like i said my article you know like he just keeps trying to reference himself yeah all these things that he thought were really brilliant that he said Jonah asks, what about Albert Schweitzer? And Cal doesn't seem to recognize the name. What label is he on? Lonnie gets a kick out of the reference, but Cal seems a little insulted to be the butt of the joke. For anyone unfamiliar, Albert Schweitzer was a theologian, philosopher, and physician who also happened to play the organ. Jonah plays Ace in the Hole, the first song he pitched, with the full backing of the band in a club. Between towns, the band challenges each other to, to name a string of rock musicians who have died before their time. I didn't quite understand this game. Because it didn't seem to go in any particular order. Like, I, I, I thought it was, you know, like a game where you round robin and, you know, get somebody out because they can't think of somebody. But they're all just kind of randomly yeah. naming people. And if someone gets it wrong, they're like, whatever, and they keep going. Yeah. But, like, but, but they, there's a money. There's yeah, money on the line. <laughs> yeah. The guy, the guy had to buy in, which seems kind of unfair because they've already named, like, a bunch of them. Right. And now he's coming in. It's like he can come in late to the game. We cut to Jonah singing a slower song in blue light at their next venue. When they get to the following venue, the place is just boarded up. They didn't give Jonah any warning. Jonah calls the guy who owned the place, and his wife says that he straight up disappeared and left her with all the kids and a bunch of bills. There's some tension with unpaid band members, but not much Jonah can do to please them. Everybody hops on a plane, and suddenly Jonah is making out with his ex-wife, or I guess now it's his ex-wife, Yeah. at, uh, at their home, and th- they go th- to bed together. I thought this was a flashback. Oh, okay. Like I, I was like, oh, we're we're in a flashback. Like he's on the plane and yeah. he's fantasizing about the life he could have had had he not mm-hmm. been on the road. And then you're like, oh wait, no, that's nope. happening now this for is, some reason. It's the life he has. <laughs> Jonah flips on the lights in the middle of the night to start a chat that devolves into a fight. Marion is mad that he left them for the band and reminds him that he can't just show up for sex whenever he wants it. The argument wakes Maddie up. I feel like that's an argument you have before the sex. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise you're kind of undercutting your own argument. Right? <laughs> like, clearly I can. Well, no, he he can show up for sex whenever she wants it. That's true. There you go. The argument wakes up Maddie, who asks for Daddy to tuck him back in. We see Jonah about town doing his laundry, taking out trash. He checks in with his agent, Bernie, at Premier Records. Evidently, there's a radio and records convention in Chicago the last three days of the month, and Jonah is free, because he's always free. They're going to do a salute to the 60s night. They got a lot of big acts. They got Sam and Dave. Love and Spoonful is going to reunite for this. Tiny Tim. Uh, they're even trying to get Dylan. And they want you to do soft parachutes. I think I can get you 2500 Bernie, we don't even do that song anymore. Bernie says they can take home 2500 if they play soft parachutes, which the reviewer they read earlier mentioned as a glaring absence in their set list. Jonah says they don't play that anymore because the war is over, and it doesn't make sense now. Bernie tries to talk Jonah into taking the gig without the band, because he's the face. We cut right to the show, and Sam and Dave are on stage in the middle of Soul Man. 
The music of Sam and Dave featured prominently earlier this year in the Blues Brothers film in the same city. The MC transitions from the end of Sam and Dave's set to the Love and Spoonful reunion, and they launch into Do You Believe in Magic? A song that will never not remind me of McDonald's. <laughs> Much to their chagrin, I'm sure. I was what Una was with me when I was watching this, and she was into it. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's two, but she was she was she was enjoying it, bobbing do up and down. Do you believe in magic? And I hope you do. You'll always have a friend wearing big red shoes. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe in magic. Backstage, Jonah sips a glass of wine as Tiny Tim's drums a uke and sings his weird music around him. Tim is wearing an insane pants and suit combo patterned with old DC Comics covers. Yeah, I didn't know he was such a weirdo. Yeah, I mean, you've heard his music, right? I don't know. Tip-toe through the tulips. Oh, that's, I guess not. That's Tiny Tim. I, I, I knew of him. Yeah. I guess I haven't heard his music. He's an oddball, but he's a lot of fun. <laughs> After the Love and Spoonful sing one song, they are replaced by Jonah. That was their whole reunion was literally one performance. Um, well, I guess. we're like a one-hit wonder. That's all you get, I guess. Actually, I don't know if Love and Spoonful is a one-hit wonder. Or maybe there was just like, we're going to get together, but we're going to do one song, and yeah. that's it. We're going to do the hell out of it, and then we're going to hit McDonald's on the way out. <laughs> ah, they're definitely not a one-hit wonder. Yeah. On stage, Jonah sings his biggest hit, Soft Parachutes. It's a slower song, A Condemnation of the Vietnam War. And after the show, Cal stops Jonah at the after party and asks what the good word is. Stay out of pigeons. What? Cal is gun shy about missing the Albert Schweitzer reference earlier. Stay out of pigeons means a, a large rump, a fat ass. Why is that the good word? Well, it's like, see, if, what if I was, if I was to say to you, Cal. Do you have a very fatty ass? You could be offended. But if I say, hey, good evening, Cal. You sure look Seattle Pidges. Then you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, do you? And we realize during his answer that Jonah has had quite a bit of wine to drink. As he walks away, Cal informs him that he can kiss any potential radio play goodbye for the foreseeable future. But he doesn't seem to care. Jonah gets another glass of red wine. And we see Cal complaining about Jonah to Walter. Walter sends his wife, Lonnie, to throw Jonah out of the party. She's obviously amused to hear that Jonah called out Cal's fat ass to his face and moves to follow her husband's orders. She and Jonah are flirtatious at the bar, but she's very clear on her assigned mission. She says, So he has asked me to entice you to leave. To entice me to leave? Well, actually, he just said get him out. I added the word enticement. I thought it was a more appealing exit We cut to her leading Jonah into a guest room. He asks what the extra guest room is for, and she says, it is an extra. You mean they could come in here at any moment? It's unlikely, but it's possible. You're crazy. That's part of the enticement. We cut away to Jonah and Maddie on a dad day. Not a bad day, a dad day. You had that. <laughs> Didn't we make this joke? Yes, earlier? we did. Very recently. <laughs> they play some air hockey, check out Empire Strikes Back, which I should mention is officially the first instance of someone watching an 80s movie in another 80s movie so far. Is it? I guess the there's been other movies where we've watched movies, but they haven't been released this the This is the, the first time year. where they're watching one that we've reviewed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This only came out four months after the wide release of Empire, so they must have shot it very quickly and cut it into the film. 
unless it was like the last day of production or something. Although it's possible that Empire wasn't actually out and that they just used some they advertising just it for because this. all you need is a poster yeah. and, a, and a marquee. Well, but they had like a whole like window display and all the kids were coming out with like posters. And and I'm stuff. sure right, that. that they had those months before. Empire yeah, came I mean, out. we don't see them watching the actual movie. We just see them coming out of a place with merchandise. I'm surprised anybody would have given them permission well, to use Empire it, if it wasn't released yeah, by it Fox. Wasn't, it, it wasn't Fox. It, it was wasn't. Warner Brothers. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did, but Fox was the original distributor of, of Empire. Empire. Yes. Yeah. And Warner Brothers released this one. Well, that's surprising to me. According to IMDb, Paul Simon was dating Carrie Fisher at the time of the production, which would have to mean that she had broken off her engagement to Dan Aykroyd during the production of Blues Brothers very quickly. Those those are simultaneous facts? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, we know that she was engaged to Dan Aykroyd when they were making Blues Brothers, which came out four months earlier. Hmm. And that he proposed to her during the production. As we've mentioned before on the show, Empire and Blues Brothers released wide the same day, and they both feature Carrie Fisher. Jonah and Maddie shave their faces in a bathroom mirror. The kid shaving kit is, like, disturbing to me in the same way that, like, you know, candy cigarettes are, like, disturbing now. Mm. I'm like, who would give a kid a straight razor as a toy? I'm like, I know it's a plastic version of it, yeah. but it just seems like a bad idea. I don't know. I, I, it's not the same as candy cigarettes because that's, that's a bad habit. I don't think shaving is a bad habit. Yeah, but consider this dangerous tool a toy. I mean, I guess, like, it's not like cigarettes are a tool either, but I'm just saying, like, we don't encourage you to play with sharp things. Yeah, but you get kids toy saws and toy hammers and stuff like that. Hell, like, like doctor's kits come with hypodermic needles. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. The idea of shaving. They're just like, well, I don't have my toy one here. I'll just use dad's today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Later, Jonah finds himself back in Walter's office, and apparently Lonnie has convinced him to reconsider Jonah's music. Walter connects him with an up-and-coming music producer, and right away the guy's trying to wean Jonah off the band again, and predictably Jonah puts up a fight. We get the impression that his inability to leave the band behind is partially to blame for his stunted career. Before Walter kicks him out to make room for the next, more important visitor, Walter asks point-blank if Jonah is fucking his wife, and we cut to Jonah and Lonnie in bed together (laughs) again, and he tells her that he lied for their sake. Jonah's a little insulted that he's only getting this deal with Walter because she put in a good word. She urges him to take a friend's help when it's offered. Yeah. I, I, I liked this conversation because he feels insulted that she's helping him and she feels insulted like she's being just used for sex. Yeah. And, and potentially like, it's like, this isn't what I do. I don't sleep with people who, to get ahead in this game. I'm right. not trying to do this for me. I'm trying to do this to help you. Yeah. We cut to the recording booth as Jonah and a bandmate record vocals for Ace in the Hole. The producer tries to pressure them to put strings behind the mix, and they're dead set against it. He also recommends cutting back some of the other instrumental solos that are stretching the track out. At the time, producers were always trying to massage tracks into a shorter length to help their chances of radio play. This reminds me of a bit of trivia that I just read somewhere, specifically about Paul Simon, and I have no idea where I even saw it, but... For the song Fakin' It in 1967 from their fourth studio album, Bookends, Simon had singles printed with a label that listed the track as 2 minutes and 74 seconds <laughs> because DJs notoriously avoided playing anything over 3 minutes. That's funny. Eventually, Jonah relents and a string section is dumped behind their mix of Ace in the Hole. In the end, the track sounds very bland, 
but all the money people pretend like it's acceptable. The most complimentary thing that Walter can say is, Well, certainly accomplished what we set out to do. <laughs> <laughs> this is a song. Uh, I the, wonder what version. I wonder what version is on the soundtrack. Yeah, is it I don't like know. Like a good version uh, or like the the. Very... Well, it'd have to be a good version, right? Because we're about to talk about what happens to the other version. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. I suppose, but I'm just saying, like, a, you could represent the song in two ways on That's true. A, on something that would be considered a soundtrack. But if it's considered an album, I'm sure he wouldn't want that overly mastered layers with yeah. strings and you know horns and stuff like that. The band is upset about the mix, and Jonah says that we can make changes to it, and everybody says, you make the changes. You make them change it. You're in charge here. So Jonah by himself speaks with them muted in the booth, and they're obviously very pissed off about it. We see Jonah playing guitar on his fire escape for a minute, and then knocking on Marion's door. She lets him in, and when he asks if he was interrupting, she says that she was just watching Mrs. Miniver, starring Greer Garson. Another star of Miniver was Henry Wilcoxon, who we just had as the bookstore owner and the man with Bogart's face. And before that, as the bishop in Caddyshack this year. She shares lyrics to a new song that Maddie wrote about taking a girl to a pizza parlor. And after Paul Simon looks them over, he says, And you were worried he was going to be a songwriter? Because <laughs> they're so bad. He tells her that he needs a Percodan, and then a job, and then a hug. And he explains that the album is over. She asks him repeatedly what happened. And he just starts sniffling back tears and recites miscellaneous song lyrics in place of an answer. We see Jonah walking the streets at night, and he pops into the A&R building and tells the woman at the front desk that he left his glasses in the studio. And then inside, he steals all the master tapes of their track and smuggles them out in a guitar case. When he gets outside, he opens the case and unspools the tape by rolling the core down the middle of the street. And then he hops back in his car. That's the end of the film. I feel like I would have destroyed it further away from the yeah. place in which I stole it from. <laughs> I don't think that he worried about being caught for doing it. Oh, I don't no. know about being caught. I was salvaging the whatever's there. Oh, you're saying that they might re-spool it and do yeah. something with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think that stuff's fucked as soon as it hits the street. Yeah, I agree. But also I feel like it would have been more satisfying as an audience member. To see it thrown off a bridge or something? Like, yeah, thrown into the thrown into a river it's or... Like, this is not getting recovered. Yes, yeah, set ablaze in some manner. Um, even running it over, I would have been more satisfied yeah, yeah, yeah. with it. Like, he, he gets it out and just puts it in front of his car and just... <laughs> or maybe if after he rolled it down the street, he ran it over. You know, and the, the thing is huge. Like, it's, you know, it's, like, larger than a dinner plate size yeah. of a reel. And, like, he only gets it a couple of car lengths down the street, and the rest is, I think, still spooled up, which is mm -hmm. why I would think, like, I like the idea of throwing it off a bridge so we can see the whole thing, you know, flutter off the reel yeah. and just be gone. That's true. Our director here was Robert M. Young. He has a bunch of features and docs that I don't quite recognize, but they all seem pretty cool. Uh, he also did five episodes of the Battlestar Galactica reboot, directed them. Writer Paul Simon, he played Tony Lacey in Annie Hall. He played John Dryden on Millennium, the TV series Millennium. Ah. Uh, he's himself in a lot of stuff, most recently Portlandia. And he also plays Leon's friend in Horace and Pete, which is that Louis C.K. show with... Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, the live show. Yeah. Um, that he was like basically just selling episodes on his website. Mm -hmm. And he obviously plays Jonah here in this movie. Uh, most of... <clears throat> obviously, most of his credits are soundtrack and composer credits most famously in the graduate blair brown plays marion his ex-wife and wife she was miss ferranti in the paper chase she's emily jessup in altered states later this year 
She's Nella Porter in Continental Divide next year. She plays Nina Sharp in 90 episodes of Fringe. Yeah, she does. And she also just wrapped up a long appearance as Judy King, the proxy Martha Stewart character on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Rip Torn was Walter Fox. He plays Zed in the Men in Black movies. He's Patches O'Houlihan in Dodgeball. <laughs> he's Arthur on the Larry Sanders show. And he's Jim Brody, the father of the Tom Green character, Gord Brody on Freddy Got Fingered. He also played Don Geis on 30 Rock. And he'll be back as General Dumpston in First Family later this year. Joan Hackett was Lonnie Fox, uh, back as Toby in Only When I Laugh next year. She passed away of cancer three years later, and she's buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery with an epitaph that reads, Go away, I'm asleep. Alan Garfield played Cal Van Damp. He's credited here as Alan Gurwitz, which is the same credit he had in The Stuntman earlier this year. He will also be back for Continental Divide next year. And he played Harold Lutz in Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, Barnett in Nashville, Whitkin in The Ninth Gate. Mayor Winningham played Modena Dandridge. This was her first feature. Medina Dandridge. Yeah, this is the... She, she calls call, herself Doran. Y- or Doral. Doral, yeah. Yeah, she, like, I was very confused because she, she was telling the story and she was telling it what her mother called her. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe that was a nickname. Or her middle name or something. Yeah, but uh, that's not how she's identified. Yeah. It's definitely her. Yep. Uh, this is her first feature. She's Emily Carson in Turner and Hooch. She plays Wendy Beamish in St. Elmo's Fire. And she received an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her appearance as Georgia Flood in 1995's Georgia. Lou Reed played Steve Cunelian. Uh, he's a famous musician, obviously, guitarist, singer, and songwriter for the Velvet Underground. His most successful single was Take a Walk on the Wild Side. This is his first of very few acting credits, though he did appear in the weirdest sequel I've ever seen, Arthur Three: The War of Two Worlds, wherein the Dudley Moore character is replaced by a swarm of CG fairies. <laughs> yeah. It's very uh, weird. I liked the first Arthur and the Invisibles. I liked it. I didn't love it. But oh, I this is a different it. franchise. Okay. What? I'm continuing my joke that I thought oh. was a sequel to the Dudley Moore series. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you explained that. Yeah, I think most people <laughs> I, would not understand. I, I, I didn't understand. <laughs> Arthur two on the rocks. Arthur three. The War of Two Worlds. Is is the Invisibles okay? It's okay. It's it's they're it's, French or something, right? Yeah, they're all done by Luc Besson. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. Well, it's it, hit and miss. It's hit and miss. Um, but uh, I like the first one. Okay, it's got Freddie Highmore and David Bowie and Jason Bateman plays a really fun supporting character. Um, but uh, then they kind of went off the rails yeah harry shearer was bernie weppner we had him in loose shoes earlier this year as the announcer voice he's in a bunch of christopher guest movies spinal tap and the simpsons and we went over a lot of his simpson voices in our loose shoes review so you can check that out daniel stern was the Hari krishna guy at the airport uh he looks like either he dyed his hair black or he's wearing some kind of a wig mm-hmm. but he, all, he he's like so tall and his limbs are so gangly he yeah. just looks so uh, awkward walking around in the airport this was his third appearance for the year after a draftee in small circle of friends and a struggling actor in stardust memories he's a wet slash sticky bandit he's the adult voice and sometimes father of fred savage and the star of bushwhacked <laughs> <laughs> under celebrated <laughs> classic jordan kale played lee perry uh, he was Flame earlier this year in Carney and a hostage in Quick Change. Harper Simon played young Jonah in that early sequence where there's a kid standing at the 
piano, and that's the son of Paul Simon. He doesn't have a lot of credits though so far, but he does have soundtrack and composer credits, just not on things I recognized. This is a fun movie. I, I like the music. I think the story's fine. It's not super complicated, so there's not a lot to follow, but I like the characters and I like the story. Yeah. I like the music a lot. I think yeah. it's probably a great album just to listen to, but the movie was just kind of lacking. Like, There's no just, stakes to anything. There wasn't. There was just wasn't much to it. So, like, a, you know, story wise, it wasn't super engaging. So you were just in it to listen to the music, which is all right. I, I had a lot of problems. <laughs> I okay. was like, what is this movie about? Oh, he's gonna. He and his band are gonna get together and they're gonna keep doing music. Maybe. Um, he's gonna reconnect with his wife and rekindle his wife or get have some kind of better relationship with his wife and kid i don't know maybe uh he's gonna not have a music career anymore he's gonna stop doing music i don't know maybe because the movie just leaves everything like all these loose threads i don't think any of it's loose i think he's not getting back together with his wife uh he dumped his music career because he wasn't interested in playing by their rules anymore and so if he's going to do anything it'll be going on random tours with this band until their their money peters out or they can't get and they're already at that point where their shows are getting canceled mid-tour because the reviews are so bad so i think i think he's done i think that the band officially killed his last chance because they were like you got to change this all around and it's like nobody's here for you guys right now the whole point is that they want my music and you guys are messing it up and that was the end but I, I felt like it was clear that at, at the very least he was done performing music. I, I I wasn't sure. I I didn't. I felt like all the different plot threads or I, concepts of what I thought the story was going to be about, like the band getting another, like I said, the band getting maybe more famous or getting more nor, notoriety or his integrity to stay with his band. Like I, I felt like nothing was really accomplished at the end of the movie. I feel like it is a turn on the regular like musician biopic or fictional musician biopic where the guy is convinced by the record label that he can do it on his own and then he leaves the band and then he eventually comes back to them. Mm-hmm. But this is the story of when the guy doesn't do that. And yeah. It's like, oh, then yeah. it's just over immediately. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when the movie ended, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At first I thought he was going to go in and steal just the tracks so that he could release his own their own mix mm-hmm. without the backing but then when he throws it down the street i was like okay he that's him giving up and he's and he's throwing away any opportunity at working with these people again he already lost radio and now he's losing the record business because he pissed off both of those people on purpose yeah i thought he was gonna like maybe get together with lonnie like like there was gonna be some kind of thing like she was gonna produce his record oh interesting I don't know. I, I kept yeah. thinking. No, I kept thinking was, something. There was lots of things that could have made a more interesting. You story. wanted a happy ending. <laughs> I did. Wanted. I wanted a happy. Well, it, ending I don't think fault. it had to have a happy ending. It just had to have some resolution, some point. Why did I just watch this for an hour and a half? <laughs> I know. I have watched it. To listen to the music. Yeah, it's good music. It is good music, but just listen to the album. Don't watch the movie. I can lend yeah. it to you. <laughs> I'm still giving this a thumbs up, actually, because the music is that good that I think it's worth watching. Uh, yeah well i think i'm gonna give it a thumbs down because like i said you can you can enjoy the album without sitting through the rest of this that is true uh it's a down for me i was not i this is gonna be i did not enjoy this film yeah i guess really the 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 film doesn't add anything to the album yeah 
really. Yeah, it's not like it's not like we get, you know, there's a lot of great albums out there that are sort of story albums that they they literally design the songs to to take you on a journey. And I could see that a movie of those albums would enhance it. And I don't think that these songs, you know, make a make any sort of story or journey and doesn't add anything to the music. Yeah, that's fair. Letterbox, where's this going, Jess? I have it at 93. Okay. It is just below Honeysuckle Rose. And I say that because I think that they're very similar movies in my mind. Yeah. Um, they, they have great music, but there's not a lot happening. Music's a lot better here. But I, I, I think that Slim Pickens makes Honeysuckle Rose That's that much true. better for me. So There's I not a character like that in this movie. <laughs> yeah. There's no actors in this yeah. movie either. So, I, so Honeysuckle Rose just nudged it out, and that puts it um, just above The Exterminator. Yeah. Richard. <laughs> I actually have it higher <laughs> after all that uh, huffing and puffing I did. Um, I have it at 88. Um, it's just below. So barely higher. <laughs> two, two up. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's still. Yeah. Um, uh, it's just below In God We Trust and just above Holy Moses. All right. Um, I actually have it in 69th which is just under Man with Bogart's Face and just above Bronco Billy. Because uh, I uh, I enjoyed this, and uh, and it had some lovely music, and I'd watch it again. I think that's about everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Somewhere in Time, which IMDb describes like so. A Chicago playwright uses self-hypnosis to travel back in time and meet the actress whose vintage portrait hangs in a grand hotel. We leave you now with a trailer for Somewhere in Time. Richard Collier is about to begin an incredible journey into another realm, another lifetime, in search of the love he could never find in this one. That's Elise McKenna. Starred in a play in the hotel theater. When was this play done? 1912. Dr. Finney, is time travel possible? That is a question. Arthur? Arthur? You're the only one who can help me. Pictures is proud to present 
Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour, Christopher Plummer, somewhere in time. Someday, in the past, he will find her.